Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, this was the perhaps pinnacle hope of Jesus as he anticipated the end of his earthly ministry that you would make us one. I pray forgive us, Lord, when we've let opportunities go by where we would develop a bond. Forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to gather for edification. Forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to gather for proclamation. Forgive us, Lord, when our gatherings have created division instead of unity. And I'm praying, Lord, that a deeper love for you would lead on to a deeper love for each other so that we might bring the sweetness of your Spirit into a colossal battle in which we remain the spiritual David against Satan's Goliath. Do something now in this morning of the order that you've already done. Prepare our hearts, prepare mine. And now, Lord, I pray, teach and touch according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning about the difficulty of becoming a pastor. If it was hard 30 years ago, it's harder today. No, it was something when I, when I sat in that church school and my heart was opening up to Christ and I was learning about the beauty and the nobility of Jesus Christ and all the faithful people that have followed him through the millennia. As I listened to the stories about the pioneers of this church, great men and women, who dedicated their all, sold some of the most central things to the production of money in their lives, like Buck and Bright, that prize team of oxen that were the best in five counties so there could be a steam press in Battle Creek. And the owner would go down there and listen to the hiss and the purr, and he'd say, there's Buck and Bright pulling for the Lord. No set of oxen to plow his field the next spring. As I sat and listened to these stories, as I saw the pictures of the pioneers on the walls, as my teacher who was filled with the Holy Spirit day in and day out praying for us would come to that classroom, he was forming a little family of faith and posturing us to make a difference in a dark world. At the end of that year, I was baptized. The next year, they had us up uh, doing what you'll be able to see this afternoon in the lead program at 4 o'clock, carefully discipled to encounter Christ and then share Christ. Of course, there's a personal dynamic of that, which isn't to be skipped, but there is, a, there is a power in carrying the mantle of proclaiming the most beautiful message that's ever been told. And at the end of that little message I gave, it was clear to my teachers that God might have something in mind for me, maybe a, a unique gift. The next Monday at school, they pulled me inside and they said, Ronnie, we think God might be calling you to the ministry. And I'm thinking, me? Like the pastor? It settled in my heart and mind as a beautiful thing until I settled a little bit too much into my Christian role and entered those later adolescent years and, and just started melting in to the 
culture of the church, which has so many beautiful things. I love this church. Do you love this church, friends? There's nothing like the sweetness of Jesus when he makes his people one in this church. But sometimes we don't follow on doing this one thing, seeking to know Jesus, wanting to know him more than anyone else. And I I lost my way for a little while, and I, I went to a public college, which if you're there, friends, be a light. But make sure you're there because you should be there. I was there because I didn't have the faith that I should be at Andrews University. And after a year of that journey with another sibling coming behind me, I said to God one day, God, I'm going to Andrews University, and my sister's not going to have the experience I've had this last year. Listen, doing what God wants always looks hard, but it's always the best and the most beautiful if we have faith enough to hear his voice and follow him. Every single thing this church does is resisted at a level that other churches And other entities are not resisted at. In your personal life, this will be true as well. And when when I arrived in in Bridgman, Michigan, in a rainstorm, in that little red traveling bomb, it was a a pinto, if you remember those pintos. They were set up for for fireworks. (laughs) My sister was already at Andrews working in the business office. It was the age before cellular phones, There I am stuck on the east side of Bridgman because my car's flooded out. It's barely something you dare trust your collegiate to make a half-hour trip in, let alone the five-hour trip from Peoria, Illinois to Bering Springs, Michigan. I got on the phone. I eventually ended up on the campus, and the journey began. But I hadn't yet re-surrendered my life completely to the Lord, so I was going to try something other than ministry. I made a foray here. I made a foray there. Eventually, the Lord allowed me to stumble a time or two, hit my nose on a closed door, and there finally came a moment while I was a student at Andrews University that I said, Lord, I'm giving my life back to you. You can do with me whatever you want. In that moment, a certain peace flooded my soul. My troubles weren't over. They just changed. A new journey of challenge began. But I want to tell you something. If you're going to have trouble, friends, you'd be better off having it on the outside than having it on the inside. Have peace on the inside with God. Why am I talking to you about the difficulty of choosing ministry? I'm talking with you about it for two reasons. Number one, there are people listening to me here today, whether they're in this auditorium or they're online, whom God is calling them to a pastoral or teaching ministry. But every other person that's within the sound of these audio waves of my voice is called to a ministry. Your very life is to be a ministry. And when when I think about the life of the Apostle Paul, I recognize that he had a few challenges on the front side too. But if you think it's easy to let go of the convenience of a good life, I can remember in the beginning, I thought, man, I don't know if I want to be a pastor because they're out every evening. I like having my evenings at home. Let me tell you, friends, being out every evening is a problem this big now for me 30 years into this. But whatever it is for you, God's calling you to a different level of commitment to His church. You know the church is is struggling, don't you? Some might say it's even worse than struggling. 
Oh, we've read the statements. She says it's going to look like the church is about to fall. I wonder how long it will be until it looks like the first domino sets the others in place. We're not as far away as we used to be. Church school I went to school at where I was converted, it's out of business. The academy where I went to school at is out of business. Places that should be vibrant and alive by following the prophets because believe the prophets and you'll be established. Listen to the voice of these godly men and women and you will prosper, friends. There, there is some measure of simplicity to the vitality and the joy of winning instead of losing. If there was one thing that made it difficult for me to choose to embrace the identity of this church and actually be the face of it in time and place was the fact that I could see already, even 30 years ago, that the levels of commitment were leading to a, a laissez-faire and lack of excellence in its corporate identity and its efforts. And I want to tell you, no young man or no young woman wants to sign up for mediocrity. One of the early phrases that we adopted in ministry here at Village is, no more blemished offerings. No more showing up a few minutes before the service begins. No more moments when you didn't come prayed up and practiced up and prepared up. How many of our churches look like two-bit dog and pony shows because the way we're approaching it, the level of commitment we have, is lower than the guy selling hamburgers next door? Jesus himself said the sons of darkness are more shrewd than the sons of light. But we're living in a consumer age where you can't really hold anybody accountable because when you go to holding people accountable, they might say, well, I'll just take my money and I'll take my shoe leather and I'll go right on down the road. Thank you, no thank you. Which, by the way, is another practical outcome of being unified so that the prophetic voice in the home, in the school, in the church is pretty much marching to the beat of the same Holy Spirit drum wherever we go. Instead of picking your flavor here and picking your flavor there. Yes, it's hard to become a minister, whether you're a lay minister, and I'm not talking in the sense of following a pastor around or an elder around. I'm talking into the sense that whether you're fixing a car or swinging a hammer, whether you're writing code or doling out physical therapy, God wants to inhabit your person so that the light of his presence and the spirit of heaven is around you wherever you go because I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that instead of holding up and taking a siege mentality, we're going to hang on until Jesus comes. We're going to do more than hold the fort. We're actually going to band together in prayer. We're going to gather. We're going to pray. We're going to go. And we're going to let the gates of hell do a little bit of shivering and shaking instead of us getting up and making tepid offering appeals so that we could just keep the heat and the lights on in our churches. I'm three quarters away through my journey, unless God answers my prayer that I could be like Caleb and Joshua, in which case I'll go a little longer. It would be up to him. But if there's one thing that I decided early on in what I was doing, it kind of went along with what my mother said. I can remember those days when I'm vacuuming the floor. She told me, by the way, she's listening. Mom, I'm calling you back into that fellowship. She's listening.
not politically correct. But you know, the church is waiting. There are many that have wandered. The Spirit of Prophecy says it will come back. The story of my life is not, is not, it's a beautiful, hopeful story for which I'm eternally grateful to my mother, but it is not a story of a Seventh-day Adventist home. It's the story of a woman who went her own way but did decide that her kids would have a chance to choose if they wanted to. And so when I was thrust into that church school at 13 years of age, which, by the way, adolescence is a difficult time to interject that much change. But it wasn't up to me. And she had fought too many battles, so when she dropped me into that Peoria Junior Academy, it was against my will, but it wasn't against God's will, and it was an answer to Grandma's prayers, and the turnabout was something she never imagined. She didn't realize she'd have a teenage preacher in the making in her home. And today, Mom, I'm preaching to you. I know God's calling you, Mom. You're you're following Him. And all those others, like my mother, who maybe have felt the sting of inconsistency and hypocrisy and some of those other things. God is calling you back, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. People are going to disappoint you. Things are going to go wrong. All the people I've worked for in the church have not been converted people. You say, Pastor, you're judging them. No, I'm not judging them. The fruits of their labors made it very clear that some of them became very accustomed to the mechanism of the church and administration, but very unaccustomed to the administration of truth and principle. Yes, it's hard to leave behind a convenient life, which is why so many churches are inconveniently mediocre, not vital, not alive, not making a difference. The world is not listening to the church, if you hadn't noticed The church has traded in the battle for the soul of this nation for power structures of a man-made making. The church is largely impotent today in changing even the generation of its own youth. And some would say, well, that's the church's fault. I would agree. It's just we don't mean the same thing when we say it. There's nothing new under the sun Conversion works the same way today in the 21st century as it worked in the 20th and the 19th, all of which comprise the history of Seventh-day Adventism. The prophetic role has not changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Man has created many new things and wonderful inventions, but he's at his worst when his inventions start tinkering with the social, the relational, and the spiritual. All of those things structured by God have never changed. Parents and educators, you're not to be teaching your kids to follow their dreams. Had a seminary professor sit down by me in this church this last week. Sat down by me and he said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. He says, I really do believe that we are doing our young people a tremendous disservice that echoes more the sentiments of common culture than it does the call of Christ and the cross to tell them to follow their dreams. Now listen, when a man's way pleases the Lord and when we delight in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. But prior to that moment in the discipleship dynamic, We're actually to be calling all. Today I'm calling you, young and old. We are being called to actually 
learn to let go of some of the things that are robbing our vitality and short-circuiting our spirituality so that we could fall in love again with Jesus. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open them up to the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul, this one thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This one thing. I know, I've lived through the generation listening to the stories of all the people who have articulated the neglect of their parents, especially if they were a pastor or teacher. How refreshing it was to me to listen to Brittany Birmingham in her village testimony talk about the inspiration of dedicated Adventist educators. Yes, train your families that they have two things to understand about ministry. I'm talking to every denominational employee right now. Train them that they have a right to remind you when it's time to come ye apart and rest a while. I don't ever want to hear of a family where there's not a trust-respect relationship between a husband and a wife, whatever role they fulfill, and a proper one, of course, between the children and the parents where they can say, Mom, you're working too hard. Things are out of bounds. Dad, you're doing too much. Any relationship where there's not a proper cycle of two-way feedback, proper accountability, where truth is not true anymore, will lead to dysfunction. And I, I give no countenance to the dynamic of dads who aren't around enough to spend time with their, their little boys and their little girls or moms in the same way, and certainly husbands and wives. There's really very little left to give if there's not a living cycle between the three-corded strand of husband, wife, and God. Having said that, there's a second thing to teach your children if you work for the church, is that part of their sacrifice is to share the health and vitality of their family, whether it's mom or dad, with the larger family, and yea, indeed, they're to be a part of what's going on. It's a work for everyone, and everyone makes some sacrifices and carries a cross. Let's get the balance right, but let's come back to this one thing. This one thing. 2 Corinthians 11. I wish that you'd bear with me, verse 1, in a little foolishness. But indeed you're bearing with me, for I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, I want us to get the metaphor of marriage, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Those words are laden with spiritual practicality for distinction from the world so that love can flow freely to Jesus. But verse 3 is where he hits the nail on the head. But I'm afraid... You know this is the second of probably the two most painful letters in all of the New Testament. Paul didn't know if he should send the first one. It was so strong. Utilizing his prophetic role, every father, every mother, every teacher, every pastor, there is a prophetic role. It is not the telling the future, although proverbially you may do that in the general sense of this activity will lead to this, but it is indeed the role of exhortation, edification, and consolation that's described a few chapters later in chapter 14. I'm afraid. Today, as I stand before you, I want you to know something. I'm afraid too. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I love the amazing simplicity, although I know he does write some things hard to understand, but I do love that this great mind filled with the Holy Spirit can get it down to some very easy to understand things. Simplicity of purity and devotion to Christ. When I met my wife at Andrews University, another and the most preeminent amazing thing I took away from Christian education, God gave her to me. It didn't take me long to figure out in simplicity and purity of devotion what I wanted. I wanted to carry her books. I wanted to buy her food. I wanted to spend free time with her. I loved to go for walks with her. I loved to take her out and, and, and go get something special to eat off campus. I loved simplicity and purity of devotion in the blessed benefit of just being in her presence. But I know today everybody has a really good reason why we don't come and gather in the name of Christ But it's not that we don't have simplicity and devotion for Jesus. It's just that we get that some other way. I'm here to tell you, there are thousands of churches in the Western world that are dying simply because there are not enough rays of light brought together by the magnifying glass of Christian community to start a fire on anything. David went out to fight Goliath by himself, but I want to tell you, it's pretty intimidating. When your pastor's biggest worry is whether or not somebody's going to show up, the members are going to show up and fill the pews to encourage him in the proclamation or encourage her in the proclamation, I want to tell you the church no longer has the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As a matter of fact, if they're really honest with themselves, they'll admit that other things are crowding in and the virginity of their spiritual walk may not be everything they think it is. If our churches would simply gather, they would have the unity that was sung about. They would see the presence of God as they come in humble dependence and a powerful prayer ministry to tear down the forces of evil. They're not going to do it by themselves. We've had enough good ideas. It's time to quit tinkering with the machine and get down and ask God to put some gas in the tank so it can rev to life and scare the devil to death. It's time for the church to come back to the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. And that person down the pew from you that you don't feel comfortable with yet is destined and designed to become a brother or the the woman, a sister in Christ. And the awkwardness, maybe even the frustration, maybe the natural dislike is to give way to a brotherly and sisterly affection. And that kind of love will get the attention of the world. And when they don't like what the preacher said, they'll still like the sense of communion, community, and family they got when They were with those people. But you know what? It's hard to love somebody like that who's a stranger. I know. I'm busy serving the church. I work for the church. In this community, we have a disproportionate number of people who work for the church. I know. You're all doing good work. That's why why you're too busy for some of the things that are going on. What's the excuse 100 miles from Bering Springs? This one thing. What was Paul's one thing? You say, Pastor, you're going to try to take most of the New Testament and distill it down into one thing? No. 
I'm going to distill it down into three. Contradiction of homiletical terms, isn't it? I need you to know before I get into my three, Paul hated the church. Paul hated the church. Oh, that more people hated the church today. I could wish that we were hot or cold, but Paul hated that church because it was a blazing inferno of fidelity for Jesus Christ, and it was eroding away the fortresses of darkness and tradition, of cold formality. Paul hated the church. His was a message that was destined to destroy the church, but the message of Jesus Christ was destined to change Paul. This is not a, this is not a sermon about the personality of Paul. This is not a critique of the personality of Paul. If Paul were alive today, according to modern leadership theory, he'd be a pariah. That means he'd be a cast-off in 21st century postmodern leadership theory. But I'll tell you what, if everywhere I go they serve tea, but everywhere Paul goes there's a revolution, the church itself might find a vitality, a power, a challenge, maybe even some frustration and resentment to the articulator, this powerful prophetic Paul, but the church will not be the same when the message of the prophets and the power of this Elijah message embodies more of us than it does today. Back to Philippians chapter 3 this one thing. What was Paul's one thing? Well, it's pretty much right here in chapter 3. Verse 1, finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. I want to give you some good news. According to the Apostle Paul, if your preacher never tells you anything new, it's not a problem. We think the success of the church is the pulpit. We think the, suggest, the, the, the success of the church is, is the vitality and giftedness of the person who stands behind it. I want you to know something. So many of those New Testament churches went forward without any character or very few, maybe we could have put Apollos in there, that had the kind of homiletical gifts that Paul had. But somehow that church grew through the first three centuries and conquered the pantheon of Roman gods. And we went from, well, we went to monotheism in place of that spiritual pluralism. Paul's churches were without a preacher many of the times, but they were not without power because the church itself pressed together to learn of Christ from the Word and from each other. If you want your church to come alive, gather to pray for the preacher, gather to hold him or her up, so that there can be an announcement of glorious good news that is coupled with the joy of a corporate family good news experience. It's nice to scapegoat on somebody, 
If only we could get a good preacher here, things might work. That's not what Paul says. And I want you to know, if your preacher stands in the pulpit and they never say anything new, just remember what Paul said. It's okay. It's safe for me to say all the things to you again I already said. It's a safeguard for you. There's nothing new under the sun. Then he goes on to write, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the circumcision. Probably a reference to the Judaizers. Can't prove it. Makes sense based on the rest of what he's written. But we need to know one thing. Those that work contrary to the simplicity and the devotion of Christ still exist. And then we get a little bit farther down. Verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things but loss in view of the surpassing value of the knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. And there it is, friends. If there's one thing, the one one, the one A, the one prime, if there's one thing that Paul's going to make the main thing, that's it. Oh, that I might know you, to know you in your death and in your resurrection. Paul is willing to suffer Paul is willing to endure all kinds of difficult circumstances, but there's one thing Paul's not letting go in his life, and that is this living relationship with Jesus, where if he says go, he goes. If he says stay, he stays. If he says speak up, he speaks up. If he says be quiet, be quiet. Friends, if the church was living like this today, we wouldn't have so many stumbles and awkward moments. Paul declared a change in identity, and once the change in identity was determined and and decided, Paul made that identity in Christ. By beholding, he became changed. Those three years in Arabia, the rest of the time, Paul never forgot the priority of knowing he was in God's will and out of God's way. And it's imperative today. You've got a lot to do. Some of you may be too committed to the external side of of that one supreme object of God's regard, the church. And by the way, friends, when I'm talking about Jesus, we know from Ephesians chapter 1, there's one Lord, one body, one baptism. And we know in chapter 1 that Jesus is the head of that body. That body is the object of his supreme regard. It is the church that is his fortress in a revolted world of darkness. This church, your church, is to be Outside of the walk with Christ, it is to be an expression of the inner walk with Christ, the relationship you have with him. If there's one thing that Paul did is he counted everything else but loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. So how can you skip your devotional life? You've got some kind of public thing. You're afraid. You might be nervous. You might mess up. Well, welcome to the real world where we all do. You've got a grade you've got to get. I had the wonderful distinction of making it on to academic probation when I was at Andrews University. Uh, Sorry about that, uh, all my good professors. But for all of you that know what I felt felt like and, and understand what I'm talking about, there's hope, friends. Turn it back over to Jesus. After I did that, we started climbing out of the pit. They even decided to let me into a postgraduate degree program. But I can remember a few distinct moments when I decided that, as, as one of my students had told me, I'm g- get, make, Ron, make sure you get honest grades. Mm, I'm not a cheater. And everyone said, no, you don't get it. 
Make sure you're not stealing time from God and from your family to achieve your goals. Time does not permit me or give me the opportunity to tell all the different moments when I determined, like Paul, that I I would make the surpassing glory and value of knowing Jesus Christ the priority of my life. What is it for you, friends? Maybe it's time to recognize that there are some leeches on your spiritual life, and they're not even bad, but as they're gorging themselves on the spiritual vitality that ought to be offered up to a higher order and a greater purpose, maybe it's time to say, does anybody have a little spiritual salt? I need it for a new application. I I want this blood sucker off my spiritual experience. I need to put a little bit of salt on this thing. Oswald Chambers will remind us in my utmost for his highest that the greatest competitor for our devotion to Christ is our service for Christ. At least for some, for some of the rest listening to me this morning, it's all kinds of a myriad host of other things that don't morally present themselves with with an ugliness. But I'm here to tell you, when the church can't even gather to pray in any size and semblance of numbers and any... You know, back in the day when the miners were down uh, digging the coal, they had the birds in the cages, and when the poisonous gases started escaping out of the layers of the earth, the canary would quit singing, and that was indicator to the miners, get out, get out. Today, I would suggest to you that the challenge with closing schools is not the schools themselves typically, but it is the overall absence of vitality in the larger congregation of that faith community. It is the absence of the powerful, gripping, convicting, accountability-holding gospel message that convicts us that the cross is something done by us and then shows us that the cross is something done for us. These are the dynamics of the gospel which Paul was not willing to release. He worked in the same mantle and press and dynamic of Jesus Christ. He spent time with Jesus, and like Acts chapter 4, verse 13, like the rest of the apostles, it became clear that the marks of his ministry were such that he took his marching orders from God. He was... He was faithful to the truth as it was in Jesus, always kind but always true. And wouldn't you know it, the gospel sprouted to life all over the old and new world. The first thing Paul did was he made certain that he was walking with Jesus, especially talking to pastors and administrators and teachers right now. There are so many times in our work, I'm talking to parents too, by the way, there are so many times in our work when you need to have everything right when you act. As Elder Livesay used to say, the right thing done the right way at the right time for the right reason. You need it all lining up. You need a spiritual constellation of permission to go forward. And then you need the confidence when the storm breaks out that you were in his will. We're living in an age with an absence of true prophetic ministry. And consequently, people are choosing their own paths. And wouldn't you know it, given a generation, we see colossal societal dysfunction to the point where someday the secular world's going to cry out. Even the secular world's going to cry out and say, we need to get back to church. That's where we're headed. It's not hard to see. 
The second thing that Pastor Paul did was he pressed on for the sake of others. His journey wasn't about himself. He didn't take all of the layers of his theological training and sit away doing nothing with it. If ever there was a life of service, it was Christ. But if there was one that followed hard on the heels of Jesus, it was Pastor Paul. He'd write in 2 Corinthians 11, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm speaking like I'm crazy. I'm more so, far more in labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. Pause, Pastor Ron, pause. What is the worst thing that's happened to me? Move your membership. Don't like his preaching. Start a rumor about him that's half true. Those are the worst lies, by the way. Lose a potential promotion. That one's hard to prove, and you don't need to worry about it anyway. John the Baptist said a man can only have what God gives him. There's a place for me. There's a place for you. What, what has my interest in a lost world cost me? Some sleepless nights? Yeah, I can check that one, at least partially so. In, uh, invading my family life? For sure. Changing my schedule, even how many days late I leave on my vacation? Almost always. And how does that compare to beatings without number? What's my point? Well, it's nothing new to you, but remember, it's okay for me to tell you what you already know. The less you've invested in sacrifice, the less it means. We had little Shetland sheepdogs. Had a little, little girl Shetland, uh, Shetland sheepdog. Name was Sandy. We made a terrible decision and decided to raise puppies. I was in the seminary. I was sponsored, for which I was thankful. My wife was teaching at South Bend. And, you know, I was there the day that those little puppies were born. You know, I grew up on a little quarter-acre postage stamp subdivision lot just outside of Peoria, Illinois. I didn't get the blessings and the benefit of ever watching something come into the world, but I was there when those little puppies were born. And I want to tell you, it was love at first sight and feeding them and getting, taking care of them. The only problem is uh, when you get ready to get rid of them. I'm going to sell you a member of my family? And we had the unfortunate benefit of one of them actually getting sick. Now, for those of you that maybe aren't cut from the same ilk as this, this preacher, I think one night I laid on the kitchen floor with the puppy. We made one of those trips to the emergency veterinarian services, which wiped out most of any money we thought we might make doing this. And finally, because of all that had been invested in that dog... I could not bear to watch it leave the family, so I gave it away to a family member. That was a four-footed beast with a lifespan of about 10 years. Do you know there are myriads of people eating their way into the grave? 
When one friendship with one Seventh-day Adventist who understands the laws of health and how to protect uh, some measure of vitality, with one church having one seminar and all those stars lining up just the right way for a living connection, they could have the information that changes their lives. You know, there are people that are still sucking on these weeds, and some no longer use weeds. They just light something in a pipe and work harder on their lungs in a shorter amount of time. Whatever happened to the fact that the church that started the five-day plan to quit smoking can barely rally enough people to do a health seminar every now and then? What has happened? The right arm of the gospel seems to have become palsied, maybe tied behind our back by circumstances and other priorities. I don't know, but I know this. I walk into stores, whether I'm in the store off to my west or the one off to my south, and I see all kinds of the degradation that comes with ignorance and unknowing and a lack of hope. And we're okay with it. As long as it doesn't touch the borders and the boundaries of our home, it's not okay. We have invested so little, some, and by the way, the spectrum of investment tends to be directly related generationally, and as the father of four millennials, I have no problem challenging them all and reminding them all that this daddy prays often, Lord, make them soldiers in the army of Christ. That's what I raised them for. Are there any parents reminding their children that they've been bought with a price and that they're to glorify God? Or are we simply telling them to follow their dreams? Have we taught them the practicality, the freedom, and the joy of picking up a cross? Or is it more about the fact that we kind of take a takeoff from society and get the wind under your wings? We even sing, you're the wind under my wings. Sorry for anyone that just thinks that's the greatest song in the world. I happen to think it's a great substitute for the true inspiration and the true actualization that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Five times I received 39 lashes. Can you imagine how scarred this man's back was? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. And you know what? We've got a few dangers going on in our society today too, don't we? But I wonder if they should shut the church down. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food. When have I gone hungry? Circumstantially required, that is. In cold and exposure, and he gets to the end of the list as if the whole thing's wearing him out, regurgitating it verbally, and he says, and apart from all these external things, those are all on the outside. Those are the burdens of the outside. There's a daily pressure on me concerning all of the fill-in-the-blank, friends, churches. Are you here to tell me that in the name of Paul, we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists entrusted with five greatest doctrines of the Protestant denomination, at least five of the greatest ones. And our personal agendas have the ability to reduce us to impotency in a society to where we're barely struggling to stay alive and it, ca it casts such a cautious pall over all of our administrative deliberations? Is this really where we're supposed to be on the cusp of eternity or should we come back to this one thing? 
Maybe it's time to set some of those things on hold. Maybe it's time to say, if it's an A, I'm used to it. It might have to be a B because I'm going to be there and I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to do that. Maybe it's time for us to say, like the Apostle Paul, of which the church was what he sought to establish and what he sought to protect, that we will be as committed to warning a lost world as he was. And again, this is not a, uh, I'm, I will not allow myself at least to reduce this journey to a reflection on his personality. That is reductionism of the wrong order. It's absolute fallacy. While he was a man of intensity, no doubt, he was moved and motivated by the cross. As a matter of fact, Ellen White makes it very clear. The love of Christ, said Paul, constraineth us. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14. This was the actuating principle of his conduct. It was his motive power. If ever his ardor in the path of duty flagged for a moment, one glance at the cross caused him to gird up anew his loins, the loins of his mind, and press forward in the way of self-denial. In his labors for his brethren, he relied much upon the manifestation of infinite love in the sacrifice of Christ with its subduing, constraining power. Listen, friends, for all of you who have gone before us, for all of you that are laboring right now, take courage. Jesus is by your side. Take courage. Your, your labor is not without fruit. Take courage. The, the harvest will be greater than maybe it looks right now. But remember, friends, we have a unique stewardship, and we need to come back to this one thing, winning a lost world. The third thing Paul did was he pressed on for the church that it might stay true to Jesus. That's what most of these letters are about. One of our New Testament professors at the seminary said something that I wish could be put on a, a, a megaphone. While Paul gives us the most beautiful narratives of righteousness by faith, you need to remember that most of the New Testament is about behavior modification. Now, a discussion of motivation would be very important once I say that, wouldn't it? Is it for legalism and acceptance? Is it for earning one's way? Or are we back to the simplicity and devotion of my love for Jesus that says, Lord, you can have it all, my palate, my ears, my eyes, my hands, my relationships, my money, my dress, ad infinitum. It's all yours, Jesus. But I want to tell you, Paul practiced the prophetic gift to keep the church true to what it was called to. In Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, it says, don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke him. And he says, I believe it is to the Ephesians, maybe it was the Corinthians, he said, I've in front of the whole church. How about when he writes in chapter 4, am I your enemy because I've told you the truth? churches that he actually shed blood to establish. But I want to come back to Leviticus 19 because we love to quote verse 18, but we have forgotten to read it in context, friends. And so I'm going to read the two verses together, and you'll wreck revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But here comes the famous line in context, just told how to do it, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Years ago, there was a carpenter building cabinets for Picasso. And he had a question about the cabinets. So he went down to the great artist's studio. And the question was not answered with words. The question was answered with a drawing. And as the carpenter stood there watching and Picasso is, is sketching out what he wants... The deal is about to be finalized and struck, and Picasso asks him how much money he wants. 
And the shrewd carpenter replies this. He says, we, pastors, teachers, and parents, administrators, the mark of our ministerial imprimatur is on the people that we are discipling. What does it look like? Have we simply raised up a group, as Kenda Christie Dean will call in her book, Almost Christian? Have we raised up a group of moral, therapeutic, deist, nice people? They're not going to create a stir in the world. They're not going to embarrass us and cause a big problem. But nobody's life is going to be changed either because they've learned that they're at the height of the, of the mountain. They are the peak of kings and queens in a customer and customer service age. God is actually calling us to call our children not to chase their dreams, but to this one thing. The other night, I, I pulled into my driveway. I live about a thousand feet back in the woods. God gave me a little house back there. When I step out on the porch, I'm at Camp Ensemble. I can't see another house from where I live. It's, his, it, it's, it's for me so that in the midst of my commitments, I don't have to go anywhere. I can just go walk my driveway if I want. This week, on my way home from one of these virtual camp meeting experiences, it's one of the nicest, nastiest black cats you're ever going to meet. When we got that cat, it had been born underneath somebody's porch and was half wild. And I should have known we were in trouble when, when as we years went back, and it's like, whoa. He's half wild. When he's not half wild, he's wonderful, devo wonderfully devotional. A cat got taken to the uh, Humane Society. Fortunately, an outside cat. The people at the Humane Society didn't want to deal with him. Well, I, I know he's a little hard to deal with. He doesn't like going to the vet. I show up at the Humane Society, and I came with the right ferocious in the back of that cage. It's a big black cat that he scared even me. And finally, I mustered up my courage, and I reached into the back of that cage, and I grabbed him. Had a few choice words for him. Paid the money. After all that expression of gratitude, I thought I should leave something behind. Actually, I was required to do that. So the other night, he's on the driveway, crouched. He's getting ready to pounce. So I just stop. I wonder what he's going to get. And he just moves so slow. The tail is flicking. It's pretty late. Finally, I say to myself, I can't watch this anymore. I need to move on. So as my little car starts to roll toward him, things start to happen. He rushes to the base of a little white pine, and I hear a little screech, and I'm thinking to myself, he's got some animal. I jump out of the car. No welder's gloves. And I grab that cat by the nap of the neck and I say, you let go. He's got this cute little bunny. I know, oh, what about all the lost people in the world? 
I grab that cat by the back of the neck. He wriggles out for me. The bunny runs off. He runs across the road. Now I'm in the bushes on the other side. I grab that cat again. You let go of that bunny. Poor little bunny. Whiskers twitching. He's okay. I grab that cat. I throw him in the car. I drive down my 900 feet of gravel driveway. I take him in the garage. I get him a big scoop of cat food. You eat this. Leave the bunnies alone. This one thing. You'll remember the bunny. As far as I know, he's still hippity-hopping around out on my estate. But I want you to hear the words of God to Jonah. There's 120,000 people over there in Nineveh that don't know their spiritual left hand from their right hand. And it's okay with you, Jonah. Well, it wasn't okay with Jonah's God, and it wasn't okay with Paul's God, and it's not okay with your God or my God, that means it shouldn't be okay with us. I'm calling you back to a new commitment to Christ. He'll speak loud enough to tell you what to let go of and what to hang on. I'm calling you back to a new commitment to reaching the lost, and I'm calling you back to a new commitment in the name of Christ, in the name of Paul. And I'm going to guarantee you something. It'll work a lot easier than you think, and it'll be a lot harder to make the choices to be here and take advantage of those mighty weapons of warfare for pulling down the strongholds of this age. God's done it before. Believe his prophets, so, you, so shall you be established. And let's go on and believe him again, and so shall ye prosper. No blemished offerings, only our best for the master. Lord, I want to know you more, to know you in your death and resurrection, and I'll go where you want me to go. And yes, Lord, someday this Paul, he couldn't be crucified upside down. Peter and Paul crucified. Peter was. But Paul, about A.D. 67, finds himself being walked out to the executioner's block. But Ellen White tells us that his thoughts sprung forward to the inheritance as the shadow of the executioner's swing came down to sever. And of course, all he was doing was following Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, it wasn't robbery for him to be called equal to God, but he made himself of no reputation. He became a bondservant, and he humbled himself in the likeness of men, and he went farther. Being found as a man, he went and was obedient to the point of death, and he went farther, even the death of a cross. Why? Because he only had one thing on his mind. Me and you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.